Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. We continue our series we've been in now for seven, eight, nine weeks called Questioning Christianity. And this morning, the question is, won't heaven be boring? I think most people outside the church aren't that appealed, attracted to probably what they conceive of as heaven. I mean, what do most people think of when they think of heaven? Just what's the first thought? Don't say it out loud, but what comes to your mind when you hear heaven? For 70% of you, it was fat babies, wasn't it? It was fat flying babies, wasn't it? It was puffy things, and it was clouds, and it was, it was the harps, right? No thanks. We've, we've seen here famous hymn, right, Amazing Grace. And one of the lines there, when we've been there 10,000 years bright, shining as the sun, we have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. 10,000 years of choir practice? And we're just beginning? Now, Taylor and the team may enjoy that, but, you know, I love to sing, but 10,000 years and we're really getting going? Is that all heaven is? Well, like so many objections, uh, it's really important to know what the Bible actually teaches about a topic. It's also helpful to know a little bit of history. Plato, many know the name Plato, was an extremely influential teacher and philosopher. He was taught by Socrates. He taught Aristotle, very influential, born in the early 400 BCs. And fittingly, his system of thought, his philosophy was known as Platonism, uh, sometimes called dualism, later known as Gnosticism. And the Greek mindset was that material things are bad. Spiritual things are good. And so part of the journey was let's escape the body. Anything matter, material, solid was looked down upon. That was evil. But the spiritual things, the ethereal things, that was the positive things. Hugely influential. So you can imagine how that vision of things, that the material is bad, the floaty is good, would infect and affect our vision of eternity. If matter is bad, we need to escape it. We need to go away from earth to and eternal heaven. And many Christians still have a lot of Platonism sloshing around in their system. But as we've done in this series so far, we've got to turn to Scripture to rightly answer the objection if heaven will be boring or not. Did you know that not a single person in this auditorium will spend eternity in heaven? Don't throw anything at me. Not one, not one of you will spend eternity in heaven. I've got this little book by David Lawrence and it's called Heaven dot dot dot. It's not the end of the world. Heaven in the Bible is actually temporary. This is where it's important to really understand what scripture teaches. Heaven is temporary. If we die before the Lord returns, here's how it's going to go down. Our body and our souls will split. And if you're a believer... In a way that God never intended. And so our souls will go to heaven to be with the Lord. But that's not the end of the story. When Christ returns, he'll bring about what we just sang about, the resurrection. What the church has confessed together for all of church history. He will bring about the resurrection of the dead. And so our ultimate hope, our forever hope, our eternal hope is not heaven. Not a disembodied heaven, but resurrection life. What the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth. New creation. God will reunite our souls and our bodies together and physical bodies will be raised and we will reign with him on a physical earth. 
This is what New Testament scholar calls life after life after death. We tend to think about heaven in terms of the eternal state when biblically heaven is really the intermediate state. The eternal state is a new heaven and new earth with physical bodies on a physical world. Again, the Bible calls it that. It calls it a new earth or the new heavens and the new earth rather than heaven. In fact, let's look at the last couple of chapters in the Bible. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 200. Let's look at Revelation chapter 21. Last book of the Bible, last couple chapters. Revelation chapter 21. Let's read together the first eight verses here of Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's pray together one more time. Father, we're grateful to be able to open your word, and we ask again that you would come and help us, shape us, form us. May we live for and in light of this great reality. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to make four observations from these verses this morning. Number one, heaven will be physical. Number two, it will be a new Jerusalem. Number three, God will be present there. And number four, he's going to make all things right. And the first thing is that ultimately it's not heaven. It's the new heavens and new earth. It's physical. See it there again in verse 1. Revelation 21.1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. John sees a new heaven and a new earth. It's not just clouds and fat flying babies. It's a renovated earth. God is pro matter. He's not a Platonist. He's not a Gnostic. He is for creation. It was all his idea. In fact, one way to summarize the whole story of scripture is creation to new creation. 
And this is all in keeping with his promises. This language here that we're looking at in Revelation 21 is filled with the Old Testament and especially the prophet Isaiah. Let me read what Isaiah promised in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. Promised that God would remake the world. He said, behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. In keeping with his promises, God is bringing his plan of redemption to completion. And that's the vision John sees. It's a whole new world. With his first creation, he created the world and then the people. In the new creation, he creates the people. That's us, the church, the new humanity. And then he will create a redeemed world for his new humanity to dwell on forever. We are redeemed and then God will redeem his creation. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. Keep your finger in Revelation 21, but turn over to Romans 8. Again, if you're in your pew Bible, it's page 124. Romans 8 speaks of this renovation of the earth. Romans 8.18, really good verse to have memorized. My D group had memorized it a couple weeks ago. I'm tempted to ask some brothers to stand up and recite it for us, but we won't. But it's a good one. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. I love the way he speaks of what's coming. It is glory. Verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. The creation itself set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Notice what he says here. He speaks again. It's glory that is to be revealed and it will make the current sufferings worth it. They will pale in comparison to the future glory. And he says the present creation eagerly waits for this redemption. The mountains are wringing their hands. The sea is on tiptoes with the sin of Adam. Creation was subjected. It was subjected to futility. But in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation will be redeemed. This earth will be renewed and restored. It groans. The creation is groaning as we wait for the redemption, not of our souls. Romans 8 says of our bodies, the resurrection of the dead. God will do for those in Christ. And for the entire cosmos, what he did for Jesus. The hope is resurrection. Revelation 21, 1, again, it says, The first heaven and earth passed away and the sea was no more. 
sea. I don't think that's actually saying that there will be no bodies of water on the new earth. We've got to understand what the sea meant in the biblical times. The image of the sea was a symbol of great darkness in the ancient world. It was a picture of unrest and conflict and chaos and evil. Revelation and Daniel, Revelation quoting Daniel, speaks of beasts coming out of the sea. But in the new earth, there will be no unrest, no chaos, no conflict, no evil. There will be lights and security and safety and stability. God will remake. He will redeem. He will resurrect this world. This is what Peter's getting at in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? In lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, Isaiah, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The current earth will be burned up. It will be dissolved and the works done on it will be exposed. Maybe your translation says laid bare. In the context here of 2 Peter, we don't have time to go there, but he just mentioned Noah. I think the idea is just like in the days of Noah. What was destroyed in the days of Noah, it actually wasn't the earth. The earth was purged, but it was the unrighteous that were destroyed. So this earth will be purged. It will be renewed. It will be restored. There will be no more sin. We can't even really fathom that, can we? Zero traces of the curse on this earth. Isaiah 60 speaks of this. In fact, Isaiah 60 speaks, go read it sometime, of the glory of the nations being brought into the new Jerusalem. So I think the best parts of culture will be in the new heavens and new earth. Based on Isaiah 60, it just will be free of sin. The best aspects, he mentions things like the cedar trees and the the ships of Tarshish and the, the kings of the nations bringing their glory in to the new heavens and the new earth. It will be glorious and it will be on the earth. Again, it'll be physical. So now, according to his promise, we wait for the new heavens a new earth. Heaven will be on earth. It's what we pray, right? It's how the Lord taught us to pray. May your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a vision of that vision coming to fruition. So the first thing is it's physical. Second thing John mentions here is it's the new Jerusalem. Look at verse 2, Revelation 21 verse 2. I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It's a city. The garden has become a city, and it's coming down from heaven to earth. And this eternal state is called the New Jerusalem, which tells us the old Jerusalem was not the be-all and end-all. It was actually a pointer to something much greater. Think with me for a minute just about this theme of land in the Bible. It begins actually not in the promised land, but in the Garden of Eden. 
That was God's first sacred space where the Lord walked with his people in the cool of the day. Of course, you know what happens, right? They sin and they are expelled from the sacred space. They're removed from the land. They were supposed to guard the garden. Now the garden is guarded from them. But the storyline continues. God judges the world. He purges the earth of sin. But then we repopulate it with sin again. But he makes promises to Abraham in Genesis 12 and promises him a people and a blessing and a nation and a place. God was recapturing and advancing what was lost in Eden. But Abraham's family ends up enslaved in Egypt. God frees them, frees his people, places them in the promised land after wandering in the wilderness. But then they too are expelled from the sacred space because of their sin. They're still east of Eden. In some ways, the story of the Bible is who will bring us back to Eden. But God promises to restore his people and through the prophets. And as we've seen, Isaiah promises, ultimately, that will be a new heavens and a new earth. The new Jerusalem, the first Jerusalem was a pointer to something greater, the whole world. The first Jerusalem was a type of the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. Which is why Paul can say in Romans chapter 4 verse 13 that Abraham was an heir of the world's. There are two different Greek words for, for world and lands. Paul used them both. He could have said Abraham was an heir of the lands. He says that Abraham was an heir in Romans 4.13 of the world, of the cosmos, because he knew that ultimately Canaan was a pointer to something much greater, ultimately the whole world restored. Then in Ephesians 6, Paul does the same thing. Ephesians 6, he actually quotes the fifth commandment as he's talking to kids to obey their parents. Then there's a promise attached, and it's that, that you may live long in the land. Well, back in Exodus, that referred to the promised land. And in Ephesus, it refers to a whole lot more than that little strip of real estate in the Middle East. It pointed forward to something greater. Ultimately, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. So the garden becomes a city, a city prepared as a bride for her husband. So the city is a bride. Here we see that it's both a people and a place for that people, the bride of Christ. So Galatians 4 can speak to us, the church, and say that Jerusalem above is our mother. We are the Jerusalem people, which really was another fulfillment. I want to turn there to Psalm chapter 87 and read how this city will actually have children. That is us, according to Galatians 4. Psalm 87 says this, On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. Another way we're speaking of Jerusalem. More than all the dwelling places of Jacob, glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention, and here we have some shocking verses, Rahab, that's Egypt. Remember, Egypt was the enemy of the people of God. Babylon, another enemy of Israel. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush, this one was born there, they say. Born where? He just mentioned the city of Zion. People from Egypt, people from Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, born in Zion. Verse 5, and of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. The nations are being born in the city 
of Zion. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. This vision of a new Jerusalem, a Zion, where the nations, Gentiles, are born there is fulfilled in us, the church, which is why Paul quotes it in Galatians 4 and says, if you are of Christ, the Jerusalem above is our mother. Hebrews says the same thing in chapter 12, verse 22. He says, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering into the assembly, same word for church, ecclesia, of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The city is the new Jerusalem is the bride of Christ. It will be prepared as a bride. Is there anything more beautiful than a bride prepared? I remember it was 12 years ago, going on 13, I was right here. And Alicia was back in those doors. And Alicia is usually very easygoing, but she was very persistent on this day that her song would go for like three, four minutes, which felt like when you're up here, 30 minutes before the doors would open. But they finally opened. And I, I, just, I just cried like a baby up here. Some of you were here. Remember that? That was ugly crying. I'm sorry. It was, man. But it was beautiful, right? A bride prepared for the city is beautiful. Radiance. Pure. This city will be completely pure. The new Jerusalem. Third thing about this new heavens and new earth is the presence of God is there. Verse 3, most importantly... Revelation 21, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This is what will make the new earth amazing. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. God is back with his people forever. Again, in many ways, this is the theme of the Bible. There's several themes. Tonight, we'll look at the theme of covenant, but the theme of the presence of God. It's sort of tied to the presence of land, right? It starts with God is present with his people in the garden. All was well. But then they're kicked out because of their sin. And mentioned the angels have to guard the garden from him. That was the sacred space where God was specially present. But he doesn't give up on his people. He comes back, right? And the next is the temporary temple, the tabernacle where God dwelt with his people, which was a pointer then to the temple. The temple was built and the glory cloud comes down and it was glorious for a little while. But then exile because of Israel's sin and the glory cloud departs. And did you know that the rest of the story of the Old Testament, the glory cloud never returns to the temple? In fact, the temple is finally rebuilt, the second temple, and maybe you remember that there were older people there. And so there was this mixture of celebration from the younger people, but there was crying from the older people who had seen that first temple because it did not compare. Surely more was needed. This isn't what God had promised. And so later Haggai would say that this new temple that's coming, its future glory will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. Still waiting on the presence of God. Enter 
Jesus. John chapter 1, Jesus came and dwelt among us. That word in Greek is the same word for tabernacle. Jesus is the presence of God on earth. Jesus is where heaven and earth overlap, which he can say in John chapter 2, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. Jesus is where the forgiveness of sins is found. He is the temple. But then Jesus leaves. But does he leave us as orphans? No. Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. The glory cloud returns. And where does it return? Not in a physical structure, but in the people. The spirit of God indwells us as the church. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you, plural, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? This was the promise. God would come and dwell again with his people. One of my favorite passages in this regard is 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 16 says this, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. The church is the temple. As God said, and this is one of my favorite passages, I wish we had time to dig in, but here Paul quotes or alludes to eight different Old Testament promises. Promises that God would come back and restore his people. Promises that God would come again and dwell with his people. God said, I'll make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me says the Lord Almighty. Again, quotations or allusions from Leviticus 26, Ezekiel 37, Jeremiah 32, Isaiah 52, Ezekiel 20, 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 43. And notice what he says. We've got an unfortunate chapter break here. Chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, all those promises are for you, the church. Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. So we are the temple, but the story is not yet over. Because in eternity, the whole world will be the temple. Right? He says that in the book of Revelation. Look at Revelation 21, verse 22, over on the next page. Revelation 21, 22, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. The dwelling place of God is with man. This is what makes eternity good news. I remember going to this evangelistic event. Maybe some of you have been there. It's called Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames. And maybe they do it different at different times. But I went uh, in Central Texas area. And it was a very manipulative evangelistic event. They really wanted to scare the hell out of the kids to make a decision and sign a card at the end of the event. It was long and it was dramatic. And one of the ways they do, would do it was they would have either young people die or their parents die. And so part of it is, hey, you want to be reunited with your family. Trust in Jesus, you'll see him again. And so at one point, one of the several scenes, they had hell and all these nasty demons and terrible music and you know, all that, and then heaven was awesome and glorious and different colored lights and background and soft music. Well, the parents had died in a car wreck, and so the little girl was rebellious, and she was mad at God, and so you saw the, the narrative go out that parents are believers, they go up to heaven, and then later the girl ends up coming to Christ, but then she too passes early on in life. 
And so they would go up the back. They had this stair up the back, and so that was going to heaven. And so the little girl had trusted in Jesus, so she goes to heaven, and she goes up, and she's up the stairs, and Jesus opens the door, and he's kind of sideways, and he opens the door, and her parents are back here. And the little girl runs right past Jesus to hug her parents. That ain't how it's going to go down, friends. It will be amazing, and it's the kindness of God that we will be reunited with family that have trusted in Christ. And that's no small thing. But the glory of heaven is not reunion with family. The glory of heaven is the presence of God. We will be with him where there is fullness of joy, the psalmist says, at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. The glory of eternity is knowing him in an unmediated way, being with him. This is what Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer. Jesus spoke these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God, being with him and knowing Christ. Look over at Revelation 21 verse 16. The city lies four square its length, the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. Notice that this city, this new Jerusalem, symbolic, of course, like so much of Revelation, will be a cube. Perceptive readers of the Bible know the main, if not only, place where a cube is found in Scripture. It's the most holy place. It's the holy of holies. Remember the design of the temple? You had the outer courts, the inner courts. You had the holy place. And then in the westernmost end, you had the most holy place. It was the most intimate access to God. And only one man could go one time a year on the day of atonement. No one else had access. John is seeing that in eternity, the whole world will be the most holy place. All the redeemed will have intimate access, unmediated access all the time. Does this excite you? Being with him forever. Listen, if being with God forever doesn't excite you now, you may not know the Lord. Maybe you need to examine yourself. If there's no excitement about being with him, you probably don't know him. There are a lot of blessings the gospel brings. We get a clean conscience. We get purpose in life. We get fulfillment. We escape the wrath of God. But the fundamental blessing of the gospel is it brings us to him. It brings us to God. 2 Peter 3, Christ died the righteous for the unrighteous. What was the goal of that death? To bring us to God. Forgiveness is only good news because it removes the barrier between us and God. Justification is only good news because we have the righteous status we need to be in the presence of God. Propitiation, the removal of wrath, is only good news because now we have his favor. And if you don't know if you know him, trust him today. Make that right today. 
confess, Lord, I don't know if I know you. Being with you doesn't excite me near as much as the thing of this world. Maybe I don't know you. Would you save me? I confess my sins to you today. If you have questions about it, we would love to answer those. We live to answer those sorts of questions. So God promises he will dwell with them and be their God and we shall be his people. This is actually a very famous scriptural phrase. It's a covenant formula that God promises again and again, starting way back in Genesis 17 with the promises to Abraham. Uh, We don't have time to go there, but I just want to list not all, but the key times in Scripture that this phrase is, is spoken. God will be their God. We shall be his people. Genesis 17, 7 and 8, Exodus 6, 7, Exodus 29, Leviticus 26, Jeremiah 11, Jeremiah 24, Jeremiah 30, Jeremiah 31, verse 1, Jeremiah 31, verse 33, Jeremiah 32, 38, Ezekiel 11, 20, Ezekiel 34, 24, 36, 28, 37, 23, Zechariah 8, 8, 2 Corinthians 6, we read that one, Hebrews 8, and then twice here in Revelation. This promise was meant to be an anchor for the people of God. I will be your God, you will be my people. So let us hold fast to him because he will hold fast to us. He will be our God, we shall be his people. Here we see in Revelation, God making good on that promise, the kingdom consummated. The fourth thing about this new earth is that God will right all wrongs. Look at Revelation 21 verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. God's going to make all things right. As they say over in the UK, he's going to put the world to rights. He'll wipe away every tear. No more mourning. No more crying, no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Oh, how glorious. I cannot wait. (laughs) Our creator will comfort us. And again, these are full of Old Testament fulfillment. Remember what Isaiah said in 65, 17, and 18 about the new earth. He said, the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. The new Jerusalem will be a joy. The very next verse says, in Isaiah 65, 19, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. All things made right. Earlier in Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 35, he said, The ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away death shall be no more the curse will be removed Isaiah chapter 25 verse 8 he will swallow up death forever 
And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The last enemy, death, will finally be put to rest. The death of death because of the cross of Christ. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. God says, I'm making all things new. Isaiah 43, verse 18, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? He says it is done. He is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. His plan is achieved. He says, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life, my favorite part, without payment. Because if payment was required, we couldn't afford it. The thirsty, the thirsty are those who long for God. Those who thirst for ultimate satisfaction and God will freely satisfy our desires. Life with God, it's what we were made for. Complete contentment in him. No more hewing out cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. Now we're turning to the fountain of living waters, the water that satisfies. I went to school in San Angelo and uh, their water is terrible. <laughs> I'm not sure if the water goes from Nasworthy, Lake Nasworthy, we call it Lake Nasty Water, but it's gross. The one advantage is that in the restaurants, the, the restaurants know that it's bad and so they'll boost up the, the syrup in their fountain drinks. So the Dr. Pepper's amazing in San Angelo, that's for free. But the water's nasty. I mean, literally, you, you just got to buy water. Compare that to like Arkansas water. Alicia's born in Arkansas, so we go once a year or so. That spring water, man, it's so refreshing, so satisfying. But Jesus says even Arkansas water. If we drink that, he tells the woman at the well, you're going to thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life, the spring of the water of life. He's going to make all things new. Jesus spoke of this too. Jesus said in Matthew 19, verse 28, he says, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on glorious throne, you have followed me, will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This phrase, in the new world, it's one long word, really. It's palingenesia. It's a pretty cool word because palin just means again. And of course, you know where Genesis, Genesis comes from, right? It's the again Genesis, Jesus says, in the new worlds. NIV says at the renewal of all things. King Jimmy version says at the regeneration. When he makes all things right, he will right all wrongs. But look at verse eight. But it's not good news for everybody. As for the cowardly, I find it really interesting that that's one of the things that makes the list here. It's a word for somebody in here today, I think. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion, it won't be in the new heavens and the new earth. It will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. 
Not all will be on the new earth. In fact, Jesus tells us many will be excluded. Remember, his ultimate goal is not torment. His ultimate goal is to protect this new Jerusalem. And so he will contain and remove the powerful destructive forces of sin. It's only through trust in Christ that we can escape this judgment. Look at over a page at Revelation chapter 20. Right before this vision, we read in Revelation 20 verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. God is absolutely holy. We are sinful. God will not dwell in the presence of sin, which means we have two options. We can flee to Christ crucified on our behalf where our sins are forgiven and we are granted the status of righteousness because of what he's done for us. Our sin will be paid for on the cross or our sin will be judged right here in the lake of fire. That's the options God has given us. Again, maybe you don't know the Lord. Maybe you don't know if you know the Lord. Today's the day to make that right. Trust in him today. Entrust yourself to him today. Acknowledge your sin and plead for him to forgive you. You're invited. In fact, let me let John do the invitation. Jesus himself, look at verse 22, 17. Revelation 22, 17. The spirit and the bride, what do they say to you today? They say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty Come, let the one who desires take the water of life without payment. It is freely offered to you today. Church, let me encourage us, just like last week, I feel like these messages on eternity should cause us to live more urgent lives. I think the American way is just to cruise when the biblical way is to live with a deeper sense of urgency that we would live in light of this truth, that it would shape the way we live. It would shape our, our, our passion and our zeal for following the Lord. And it would want us to be zealous about helping others follow the Lord, leading them to this vision, telling other people about the Lord. When is the last time you told someone else about Jesus? Do you believe this is true? We should spend ourselves to help people get ready for this, giving generously, meeting regularly with one another to spur one another on to love and good deeds. So let's get in the game. Let's take this seriously. Back to the intro. Is heaven going to be boring? No, no. It will be much more than fat flying babies and harps and clouds. It'll be exhilarating. I think we will sing there in a way we've never sung before, but it'll be more than singing. It will be life as it was originally meant to be. Eden 2.0, the again Genesis, the new creation. Christian, maybe sometimes you wonder, man, this is hard. Is it worth it? Is following Jesus worth it? Yes. Can you imagine every stain of sin 
every scar of wrong, every trace of death removed forever. No more cancer, no more MS, no more mass shootings, no more hate, no more leukemia, no more selfishness and insecurity and anxiety, no more disappointments. Can you imagine? No more loss, no more tears. The Lord will wipe our tears away. Towards the end of the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings, Sam Gamgee asks, is everything sad going to come untrue? And the answer is yes. Everything sad will come untrue. But even all that, even all that I've just mentioned will pale in comparison to being in the presence of Christ our King. In whose presence there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore.